You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more. Today on our show, I'm talking with Tim Brauner. Tim, thanks so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Tim, we're going to talk about your show at Management uh, Gallery in New York City. Show's running through June 18th of this year. Uh, the title of it is Glad Tidings, which seems a little ironic. I mean, we're going to get into imagery and, and your process and, uh, and, and perhaps motivation, but let's talk about that title, Glad Tidings, because it gives me a smile just to, just to say that um, and, and seems a contrast, of course, with some of the imagery in the show. Yeah, I, uh, thank you. Yeah, I, well, the title came... Uh, I, I don't know. I, I was thinking broadly about the idea of uh, something coming in from the outside. Uh, I, I hope that's helpful. I, I think uh, you know this this show. Uh, it, it's sort of been um, tangentially related to my work for a while, but I think this show I sort of went full bore in on uh, some interests I have to figurative painting and how they relate to uh, weird fiction which has been a fascination for me for a long time. You know, authors like uh, Algernon Blackwood, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and Thomas Ligotti. Yeah, and, and I think, suppose I just thought of uh, if, if those paintings were saying hello or something, or, or you know, preaching, you know, hey, everything's going to be okay, good news, we're here. But they're characters almost, right? I mean, you, you're talking about novels, um, and, uh, you know, and I, and I know you're, you're also... Um, kind of influence or related to uh, Messerschmitt's character heads, but you, you speak about these almost as, as characters in the novel. I, I, is that the case? Do you see them that way, or is that, is that, is that a stretch by me? Um, well, I, I think partially. I, I think, honestly, the subjects are really interesting for me. A figurative art is interesting for me in general, I think because the tension for me is... Uh, you know, the integrity of the subjects, whether or not I believe, you know, they have a kind of subjectivity or the kind of, like, give and take that I have with the subject as an author. Um, you know, I, I don't think of the figures necessarily as, uh, I suppose, uh, people more than I think of them, I suppose, almost like mannequins or, or automatons or something. It, it, it was... Uh, I guess what I was interested in is uh, subjects that are in a sort of hypostatic state of uh, being alive and dead or, uh, you know, uh, subjects that were also in sort of uh, a heightened affective register to the point that it becomes silly, you know. Uh, I, I think about, you know, the, the point in, uh, say, like a Lovecraft story at the end where the protagonist has become crazy or something or is psychotic. And, and there's an element to that that's, that's a little bit funny. Uh, and I, I don't know, I, I guess I thought, uh, you know, I, I think there's some sort of humor inherent to uh, seeing a subject through the lens of a kind of uh, weird fiction or a kind of maybe pessimistic fiction or horror, because I think it's a form of self-mockery in a certain way. Let's talk about the painting uh, Escape 3. That's, um, that's an unusual painting, and there's a number of reasons why it's unusual to me. One, it almost does seem like it's from a film, but also the composition is, is really interesting. It's, it's right to left, you know. The, 
the, the driver of the car looks like he's looking left. It's, um, it's not a kind of composition we typically see. Everything tends to be left to right. And um, I really like this painting. And, and, yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it because it almost feels like a, a film still, a narrative story. Um, but it also relates to the other heads in it, of course, in, in, in the way it's, it's portrayed, but feels here like there's a, a specific pathos almost to this particular character. Yeah, I, um, well, I would say, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I appreciate how you, uh, like, how, how you described reading it. You know, oftentimes uh, the process of arriving at these compositions is kind of desultory. I, I do a lot of drafting, uh, so it goes through a lot of stages, and sometimes I'll forget exactly how I'm, I'm reading a picture. So when something like that happens, you know, I... I when I sort of lose track of how I'm making the picture, I'm, I'm interested to put it in front of other people and see like how they read it directionally or uh, how they see the composition or how they regard the choices. That, that particular driver, I would say, if there's, if there's a subject in the show that's maybe close, close to a kind of, of uh, I guess, a self-insert or uh, a kind of uh, maybe even like... Uh, sort of a cipher or for the audience to, you know, fill in, I would say it's that painting, right? Because it's, it's also the only one that I think um, is maybe a commentary on the other works in the show. And I, you know, I, I uh, you know, I, and I appreciate what you said because I think you, you can definitely read, uh, I think you can read that character. And I think, but I, I have trouble talking about maybe the inner life or subjectivity of a character because I sort of try to keep it a mystery to myself when I'm painting. You know, I, I have general ideas about that driver. Um, you know, in my mind, sometimes it's me or it's someone else. Um, the most important thing to me was the expression when I was drafting it. Um, I got to a point with the expression where I felt like I even if I couldn't name, you know, the experience of that subject, I felt like I, I recognized it. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, it, feels, it feels like something I recognize as well. And uh, So I, I'd like to talk about a few other paintings, but maybe we should talk about the installation a bit because that's what was also very interesting to me and made me feel that there's almost a, um, like a pathway here or something. In, in the installation... Um, many of the works were were hung as as works often are, being five feet, being more or less the center. But there were two works that were quite a bit different, and um, and th those were one work was called is called Pins. It's a pretty small work. It was pretty high up on the wall, and then there was one called Second Instar of a snake, which was lower down on the wall, and. Um, and I thought that was such an interesting way to install the work. You, know, you rarely see kind of you know, installations where they really take liberties with how the work is hung. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that felt like I should be drawing connections here or, you know, the snake is on the floor and, um, you know, this, this, this means something. I mean, you know, to me there was some kind of almost um, – uh, kind of relating to the unconscious about all this, what, what, what lies beneath kind of thing. 
But, but just in terms of the installation, yeah, can you tell me a little bit about pins and second instar, which are both at pretty unusual positions on the wall? Yeah, well, the, um, I, I think uh, initially when we went into the, to the space, I, I sort of thought everything would be hung uh, at the same height. And that decision to hang those two at different heights was, was a little more uh, intuitive and reactive. Um, it began with pins. Uh, I, I don't know why, uh, but I thought hanging it higher would make the piece better. I've done that, or at least in the installation, um, it would open up a register of seeing the piece or a way of seeing the piece that it wouldn't have had if I had just hung it at center on 60. And in that particular case, I found that I liked the height uh, that it was at because it reminded me of a basketball hoop or a basketball backboard. Uh, roughly at that height. And I, I don't know why, but I just thought about those eyes um, staring out into the room or looking out uh, as someone is tossing a basketball towards it. I, I don't know why that's the image that got caught in my head. And then um, just the snake, uh, which, you know, it's a snake, but uh, I, I suppose when I was painting it, it's I don't think of it literally as a snake. Like I think, um, I don't know, I, I think a thing for me often is the, in the work is that the subjects present uh, as one thing, but they're actually not, or there's something else. Um, but that one, I did, I did just find that it operated better at a lower height. Um, I, I think, and, and you know, that wasn't the only decision. Most of the paintings in the room actually aren't center on 60. They're a little bit lower. Uh, I kind of wanted them to be more chest height because uh, I just felt like I felt them more strongly that way. Like it was the difference between a, a window and a shelf or something. Yeah, that's so interesting is because it, it really changes how you look at the whole uh, exhibition in a way, you know, looking down or up. Um, to, to talk about some of the others, we could talk about character head one or, or character head two. Both of these, you know, in the, in the show are kind of, it was interesting what you said before about kind of, you know, not defining them somewhat. I mean, that makes me feel a, a little bit like, um, like these almost represent, and this is perhaps more reading of myself than anything else, but kind of inner forces of some kind, you know, that we can identify. I mean, character head two looks somewhat demonic, as do the others. Um, you know, very intense works, very intense eyes, um, and I would think in, in a way difficult to, um, I don't know, to be with, to meditate on for a while, to, to presume that, you know, we relate to this character. How do you feel about about that, this kind of notion of of these being um, reflective of, of sort of what we don't want to look at within ourselves. Is, is, is that a stretch? Is that possible? Or, or is, is that just my reading? Well, no, I, I think that's potentially possible. I, I think, you know, uh, the art that I like uh, forces me to be a detective, right? Um, and some of the images that uh, I find most interesting in my life aren't, aren't even necessarily artworks. They'll be like artifacts that I find on image boards or I have a large morgue of um, imagery that I've collected. And it's, it's, for me, it's personally very difficult to define what exactly it is outside of some superficial aspects that like 
makes those images interesting to me. Um, and you know, I, I can definitely see that you know these these character heads might um, these character heads might refer to a kind of uh, you know inner antisocial you know subject position or, or uh, you know difficult emotions, which I'm sure. I'm sure they do. I, I think um, it's difficult for me to think explicitly about that when I'm working. I can tell you the hooks I had for those paintings, uh, Character Heads 1 and 2, which is that Character Head 1, uh, I, I was working on that painting, and I suppose I, I was remembering when I was younger, I saw a news report uh, about a man who had necrotizing fasciitis in his face. And uh, he had... Um, he, he had uh, a prosthesis uh, made to fill in his face, which were his eyes. And it looked a lot like, it, it looked convincing, but it also had like this, this element of, of being sort of like a doll or like a sleep mask or something. And so for that first painting, you know, I, I used this kind of purling gesture. And how I use it can sort of change from painting to painting. It, it can be either an optical effect or it can, it can have to do a little bit more with uh, describing the character of the subject or content. In that one, you know, I really kept that uh, purling gesture to the eyes themselves because I wanted to suggest the idea that they were fake, uh, that everything else on the character was real, this very static character, but that the eyes were somehow phony or painted on. Uh, and with the second one, uh, character had two, you know, I really... Um, I mean, that started with me trying to draw a friend of mine and then just continuously redrafting it crazier and crazier, uh, you know, adding, uh, adding this kind of model texture or, like, changing up the hair. And that one, I think, you know, there's certain... The process for drafting these is, like, a mixture of being very additive and subtractive. And that one was super additive. But I don't... I think it could be seen as maybe demonic or something, but I guess, it, you know, when I made those two paintings, I was really thinking about uh, E.T.A. Hoffman's short story, The Sandman, in particular where the protagonist is, is uh, at uh, a kind of ball and he's dancing with, you know, at the time he doesn't realize it's an automaton, but it seems to be obvious to everyone else. And it's, uh, I, I don't know. I, I was thinking about that when I was painting the figures. And then I was thinking about this story by Thomas Ligotti, that's sort of an update on E.T.A. Hoffman's story, uh, where, uh, and if you're listening, this is a little bit of a spoiler, rather than uh, this impressive woman at a party being a robot of some kind, uh, she's actually a corpse and a hypnotist at the party has convinced everybody that she's this living, you know, super vivacious person that's like the life of the party. And I guess I was trying to, at least in part of it, I was trying to think of a subject uh, that could potentially be dead and alive at the same time. Like you could read that. that that's also why uh, the subjects in those paintings are so, you know, closely cropped and, uh, you know, pretty static uh, because I didn't, I, I really wanted to keep it open about whether or not, you know, they were alive or dead or, you know, if they were alive or dead, what they were feeling or, you know. Yeah, that's so. That's that's so interesting, and and, and does sound um, like some of the 
the books you were talking about at the beginning. So uh, let me ask you that in, in, in closing. The, the one last question, uh, what are you reading now? What, what kind of books are you involved in? Well, um, I'm currently rereading uh, Thomas Ligotti's The Conspiracy Against the Human Race, which is technically uh, – uh, a book of philosophy, but I think a lot like Freud's essay on the uncanny, it's better read as actually r- really a sort of like horror story with an unreliable narrator. And, and you know, really the, uh, the, the theme at the end is that, you know, you're the monster. Uh, you know, uh, Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti is essentially a retreading of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, 19th century pessimistic philosophy, thinking of people like Schopenhauer or Meinlander. Uh, but what I find really interesting about that work is uh, he, adopts, he adopts a lens of horror in reaction to that worldview that I think is super generative. And uh, he also, you know, if you read Ligotti's prose, it's very purple and all the images are very fantastical, but they all tie back to this, this really urgent dissatisfaction with sort of the material quality of the world or the unwinnable situation of, of being alive that I find, I, I think uh, the contradictions in there, one, are interesting. And then two, I think there's something very exciting to me about acknowledging, uh, I, I think acknowledging that a certain sort of uh, framework on viewing the world, you know, like a pessimistic one is horrifying and perhaps uh, involuntary. Um, I'm also reading... Uh, Right now, I, I'm, re- I'm rereading The Mothman Prophecies by John Keel, which is uh, it's a book by a ufologist who went to West Virginia in the 1960s, but it's very clearly fake. Uh, everything in it is made up, it seems, and it's, in a way it seems very similar to William S. Burroughs' Naked Lunch, where uh, it's an author who comes up with these routines that he relays that are supposed to it seems as though they're supposed to just put an image in your head or uh, put a scenario in your head that doesn't fully resolve, but rather, I don't know, sort of points towards, points towards I think, a void of understanding or, or something unresolved. Uh, I, I wish I could explain that in a better way, uh, but I think, you know, I, I think, again, it's a kind of uh, book that invites you to be a detective, you know, not only to... Uh, I mean, obviously, in the case of Mothman Prophecies, how much of it is kayfabe and how much of it is real. But, uh, you know, more importantly to me, I'm more interested in uh, the images that come out of these routines and chapters in this book, that some of which come from eyewitness testimony, and wondering what exactly, what exactly is the importance of those images? Why are they generated? You know, because uh, Americans have a long history of... Uh, you know, fabricating this kind of supernatural phenomena. I, I don't know if you've read Wisconsin Death Trip, but it's a really great historiography about the Midwest uh, in the 19th century. And a lot of times when these small communities started collapsing, you know, these newspaper clippings talk about people seeing monsters and lights in the woods, you know, and I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't necessarily know how those are related, but for some reason it feels very urgent to me, and I... I I think those images kind of beg to be studied and, and deciphered and turned inside out. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's, I don't know. I don't know Wisconsin Death Trip. That sounds fascinating. 
Oh, it's great. It's, yeah, it's, it's mostly a photography book, but it, it really goes through these. And I'm from the Midwest, so I, I love, you know, it really sketches in why, you know, there, there's a good-natured aspect to Midwestern people, but they're also very morbid. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I don't know whether it's responsible to, you know, like just wholesale believe one interpretation or one historiography, but it is, it does give a pretty good uh, angle on, you know, historically why Midwestern people, you know, seem so eager to discuss morbid topics. And that's just fascinating because I, I don't know anything about that. And, uh, and that's so interesting and seems to, of course, relate to your work, right? The kind of books you're reading. Um, we could have easily talked about this at the beginning of the interview also um, is in part what informs the work, correct? Correct. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I would say so. Uh, I, I think actually, um, I don't know, the ideas that I'm thinking very hard about, I find more often in fiction than I find in painting. And I don't know why that is, but uh, I, I think there's something, maybe it's because an author can't see the figure they're depicting. They're willing to be a little more cool with it. And that's so interesting. Uh, Tim, I, I want to thank you for talking with me today, and congratulations on this uh, really remarkable show. I hope all the listeners get a chance to see it before it closes, um, which is on June 18th in um, a few more weeks. Tim, thanks so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to Yale Radio WYBC. This is Brainerd Carey with the lives of the artists, architects, curators, and more.